morning, Antioch. Oh, that was so good. So you guys could go to Portland and teach Imago Day a thing or two. I have to do that twice, sometimes three times with them. And every once in a while, I will say to them, say it like it's sunny outside. <laughs> so maybe that's what it is. I will say to them, you know, they, they, you get a good morning. And say, oh, we just woke up and we're not really excited. But I try to explain to them, I grew up in black church. And in black church, people talk to you and you talk back. So uh, yeah, there you go. I heard you over there, wherever you are. Amen. Now, I may not say things that are too exciting to you today, but uh, if I do, feel free to amen me. All right. So a little bit uh, about me. I am mostly from Southern California, which means I love the sun. So thank you guys for bringing it here for me because I'm going to go home and it'll be sunny for a day or two and then there'll be rain. And I've noticed everybody's extra happy here, but that happens times 100 in Portland because it's raining all the time. If you go into a coffee shop on a day where it's sunny, everybody's, hi, how are you? How are you enjoying that sun out there? What can I get started for you? How's it going? What are you doing? What are you up to? Hi, my name is this. All right, what's your name? And I just, at first I thought they were insane. When I first moved there, I've been there two years and some change, and I thought they were crazy. And now I don't think that anymore. Now when it's sunny, I'm so happy. <laughs> I want to begin this morning with a little art by a Christian rock musician named Chris Taylor. And if you're looking up here at this art, I love this piece of art. The story behind it, I love even more because Chris was driving home one day and he says he was despondent and depressed and anxious and really struggling through some stuff. And he saw a car in front of him and the bumper sticker on the car said, Jesus loves you. And he said, yeah, right. He was over it. He was completely over it. But then something led him to actually begin to recite the Lord's Prayer. And so the thing that he said, he said, I forgot that I even knew it. And he said, how simple and encompassing is this prayer? And then he went home and he drew this. The thing I actually like about this, first of all, it looks very much like Portland art. But the thing that I actually appreciate about it is that when I look at the words to the prayer, they make their way into the inside of the person. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. These are on the outside. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then it starts to move in. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive those who sin against us. And then you get right here in the middle where the heart is and it says, today's passage, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is our passage today. And I am excited that we've been doing the Lord's Prayer here at this church because I think it is, it is one of the most special ways for us to actually see and understand our relationship with God. Our home base for today is Matthew 6, 13, the first part of it, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
little background on prayer, and I know you guys have heard a number of things about prayer up to this point. And I think it's important that we understand each week that prayer was always in Israel's tradition. It was always a conversation and worship in the context of a relationship with a very personal God. God would introduce himself to people as he would say to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would introduce himself in ways that were always very relational. When we look at the Ten Commandments, what we see is a very relational God, not a set of rules, but a very relational God. You look at the very first part of the Ten Commandments and you see no other gods before me, no idols, all of these things. And then they live you into remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then the second part, the last five verses, are all about how we are to live our lives, right? So Sabbath in the Ten Commandments is right there at the heart. When you look at obeying the Ten Commandments, you actually, in obeying the first set of them, it lives you into Sabbath. And when you're in Sabbath, you can now live out of Sabbath, and it makes it possible to live out the rest of them. So Sabbath is actually at the heart. Resting in God, trusting God, is at the heart of the Ten Commandments. It's not just a set of rules. If you look at each commandment, you'll actually see that God is telling you something about himself. And when you obey the Ten Commandments, what you're saying to him is, I see that about you and I honor it. So I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But right now, you need to know that the pattern of the Lord's Prayer actually follows the same pattern of the Ten Commandments. And what you need to know mostly right now is that the Lord's Prayer is not a script. It's not something that we're supposed to memorize and repeat as much as it is a model. It's a way of engaging and being in communion with a God who is still pretty personal. He's our Father, which was mind-blowing in that day that you would pray and you would say, Our Father who art in heaven, our Father, He's my Father who daily provides us bread and teaches us to forgive even as he forgives us. But it's not until we get to Matthew 6:13 that things get a little bit wonky, right? We don't need we we don't need to actually think too long before we're asking the question, wait a second, why why do we need to pray on one hand that you lead us not into temptation and then on the other hand that you deliver us from evil? It's hard to reconcile that particular part of the Lord's Prayer with the passage in James, in James 1.13, where he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So then that begs the question, well, does God tempt or does he not tempt? And I would suggest to you that there's a huge difference between being led into temptation and tempting a person. So there are times when we are led to places where we must endure temptation. And temptation in this passage is defined in one of three ways. It's either a direct enticement to sin, whether it's outward or inward, and that's what is meant in the James passage where it says that God doesn't tempt any man. He doesn't specifically entice a man to sin. It can mean a trial, adversity, a affliction, or trouble. A problem, usually it's this picture of being kind of hemmed in. 
or it's a test. It's a test to prove the condition or the nature of something. It's, it's, a, it's a thing, it's a trial that, is, that will show you what you are, show you what you're made of, show you who you are. So does God lead us into temptation? You bet he does. Think about Jesus when he was baptized by John. Mark 1.12 says, immediately, right after he was baptized, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And then it goes on to say that he was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. So the Spirit led him, and Satan tempted him there. Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, and then God's response to him was, I did this to test you, to prove, not to God, but to you, your love for me and your obedience to me. And then David, who was anointed to be Israel's king when he was a child, went through so many adversities and so many trials and so many afflictions on his path to the throne. But I think what I love about David is that he understood better than most. The passage that you heard before I came out here, Psalm 23, it gets to this place where it says, he says, he leads me beside the still waters. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, righteousness for his name's sake. Then it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Wait, what? He's leading me, he's leading me, I'm walking, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. So absolutely, he can lead us to places where there's great temptation. And for us ordinary folk who don't plan on becoming kings and rulers of nations, we have our own temptations that we're led to, right? Poverty, sickness, trauma, even money and fame, those can lead us and carry their own trials along with them. Addiction, loss, Pete spoke a week or two ago about his own challenges with depression, that in and of itself is a trial. And it's one that he is walking through as God leads him in this relationship that he has with God. So it's hard to say that you want to be led. Who wants to be led by somebody who would let you wander into such things, right? But I have a different question. Who wouldn't want to be led by a God who refuses to leave you there and is ready and willing to deliver you from that place? <laughs> so it's worth taking a pit stop here. It's worth taking a pit stop here to talk about the reality of evil in the world. Now, the Barnard Group did a study in 2009, and they found that 40% of believers did not believe that Satan exists. And another 30% said they somewhat didn't think that he existed. So 70% of believers aren't that convinced of the existence of the evil one and many of evil in the world. But Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the devil's themes, the, the devil's schemes. And for our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is evil out there. And there is evil up there. 
but there's also evil in here. Jeremiah says the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? David himself said, behold, I am shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, said in Romans 7, I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love the law of God with all my heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the Screwtape Letters, which was a series of columns that he did for a newspaper about a demon called Screwtape who was working for the enemy. It was a fictional character named Screwtape. And after he did them, somebody had asked him whether or not he was interested in doing them again. And he said he was not interested in doing them again for two reasons. He said because, number one, he felt filthy being this demon, being this evil person who was, he was in this person every week talking about how we can do away with the people on earth and how we can trick them and how we can bring them over to the side of the enemy. He said he felt dirty doing that. And then the second reason, he said, it was the easiest writing he had ever done in his life. And that is scary. Because if you don't believe in the reality of evil in the world, and if you don't believe that there is evil out there or up there or in here, then how weak will your prayers for deliverance be? It's a small step when you don't believe that there's evil out in the world to go from God is sovereign, God is in control, to God is to blame. How many of you have ever been angry at God for something that it was not his fault? I get you, girl. I'm so there. I remember having, having this huge issue with God, and I was so ticked off at him. And I remember going to him and saying that to him, I'm mad at you. By the way, he can hear that. For those of you who think he can't hear that and he's not tough enough to take that from you, he can totally take that from you. And I said, I'm, I'm angry at you. And he said, why? And I said, I don't know, I'm just mad. And he said, it's because you think I owe you. And because my own mind had been wrapped around this picture of not really seeing evil, not really understanding that evil existed in me, that evil existed in the world. The things that were wrong in my life, I blamed on God. And he said, you think I owe you a better life than the one you have right now. And I struggled with that for a long time. And of course, my answer was, well, what do I do about this? And he, very simple, little teeny tiny phrase, three words. He said, where were you? And I knew where that was. It was in the book of Job. So I looked it up. And like Job, I listened to where were you when I hung the stars, when I this, when I that, when I all the other. And by the time I got to the end, I felt like Job. I was a mess. But here's the thing. We can be led into these lives where we are tempted to get angry at God, to walk away from God. but he will deliver us from those places. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but should we find ourselves in the place of tempting, 
deliver us from the evil that waits there for us. That seems a little more reasonable as a prayer, right? Now that prayer seems a little bit better, a little less wonky, a little less hard to accept, and a little easier to say. Because you see, temptation is not actually the problem. It's our response to the trials in our lives that matter. Some trials are absolutely necessary. They're absolutely necessary. But we don't want them because we want trial-free lives. We want tribulation-free, scot-free existence, strifeless, quiet, rose-colored lives. But I would tell you today that a life without a challenge is a life without growth. That a life without struggle is a life untransformed and unchanged. It's a caterpillar that never becomes a butterfly. It's an egg that never becomes a bird. There's so many different things that God has called for in our lives that he wants to make in us and grow in us and change in us. But if we insist on him giving us trouble-free lives, sometimes those things never happen. Anybody lift weights at the gym? Once you get past a certain place at the gym, right? If you keep lifting two pounds, nothing's going to happen. It's supposed to be hard work at the gym. I hate the gym for that very reason. <laughs> but it's supposed to be hard. And when I find myself complaining about how hard it is, then the question I have to ask myself is, what am I looking for here? Did I come here for a tea party? Did I come here to hang out? Did I come here to eat? No, I came to the gym to work to get rid of some things and to gain some other things, right? Right? And then we complain. And God is like, I just need you to understand that sometimes it takes work. Now, we meet in tribulations. We meet both God and Satan in tribulation. When we're in tribulation and we meet both God and Satan, it's important for us to understand that they each have different motives for you in temptation and in tribulation. The enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to damage you. He wants to discourage you. But when God allows you to walk into a test, it is always for your good. I went to this place where they did pottery, and one of the things that I thought was interesting was that the woman said to me, she said, well, what do you think makes the pot hard? What do you think makes it strong? And I said, the heat. Put it in the oven. That's what, makes it, that's what makes it strong. That's what makes it solid. And she said, no. She said, it's the architectural integrity of the pot before you put it in the heat that makes it strong and keeps it steady in the heat. God calls himself the potter. And he says, I know exactly who you were before I put you in that trial. And somebody's freedom today is found in the fact that God does not have you in this trial so that he can explain to you and figure out for himself whether or not you can take the heat. He has you in that trial to prove to you what he already knows, which is that you can. He knows this about you. And somebody needs to understand and somebody needs to hear that God understands that you are strong enough. He knew exactly who you were before he put you in. Now, you may not know that's why you're there. 
so that he can tell you, he can show you. When you test, when you prove gold, what do you do? You heat it up so that the things that are problematic in it come to the surface and you can take that off the top, right? Sometimes our lives are like that. God allows us to go through a temptation. He allows us to go through a trial so that the things that are in us that need to come up to the surface come up to the surface. I have been in trials in my life where the thing that needed to come up to the surface was my tendency and my willingness to be disobedient in some ways. God said, I need to take that out of you. Because if I put you here and I want you to come and preach my word, but you're still prone to disobedience in this area, I can't have you standing up there telling these people, I need you to be obedient and I'm not. But I live in this confidence that God knows who I am before he allows me to go into the trial. But the enemy does not want you to know that that is actually the case. So what is our response? If prayer is an expression of our relationship with God and the Lord's prayer is surely prayer, then what's our posture and position here? In other words, to use the words of the people in Jesus' day when they had eaten the bread, when he fed the 5,000, the fishes and loaves, they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Remember what I said about the commandments and this prayer that they kind of lay over each other, right? So that the first part, as you obey the commandments, they live you into Sabbath. And then in Sabbath, you can live out of Sabbath and live the other five. That Sabbath is there so that you rest and understand. Israel would be in captivity and they'd be in trouble. And what would God tell them to do? Celebrate Sabbath. Why? Because that was their witness to the world that God's got this, that we trust him, that we believe him. So even when we're in captivity, we will celebrate Sabbath. That's what we'll do. Why does that matter to the Lord's Prayer? Because there's a hinge, there's the same kind of place in that prayer that does the exact same thing. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the hinge right there. You start off in that prayer looking at who God is to us. The last part of that prayer is who we are with him. And that hinge, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. That's the hinge. That's the how of it. The why of it happens before them, but the how of it, how do, how do we trust him to give us this day our daily bread? Because we believe that we want his will to be done in earth as it is in heaven. How do we forgive and trust that we will be forgiven? Because we want his will done in the earth as it is in heaven already. How do we endure temptation? We remind ourselves that we want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the Old Testament, evil had one job, to keep the people of God from trusting God. And the way he did it was he would either make sure they did not enter rest 
or if they were in rest, they got out of it too soon. We move to the New Testament, it's the same exact thing. The job of evil in our lives is to either keep us from knowing the will of God or when we know it, we won't live it out. There's something that I want you to see. There's a sculpture by an artist named Brian Keith, and it's called Gethsemane. And when you look at this, this beautiful sculpture, it's this, I want you to see it at all of the different angles that, that, it, that, it, you know, that it is. Because I called the artist to ask him if I could use this in a sermon, because I saw it and it just struck me. And while I was talking to him, he said that the guy who was the model for this sculpture struggled the entire time he was working. And he kept asking him, do you want to take a break? Do you want to take a break? And he was, he was in tears at one point, and he was saying, no, because you need to get this. You need to get this. He would not stop until Brian said, okay, we're done for the day. But Brian said this was the hardest work this guy had ever done. And then I think about Jesus in Gethsemane and how he endured Gethsemane, how he was led to this place on his way to the cross. And when he gets to Gethsemane, he tells the disciples, I need you to pray. Just sit there and pray while I go and pray. The thing I love about Jesus is that prayer is never a last resort. It's always his first response for everything. And that should also be our lives. So Jesus goes and he prays. And one of the first things he says, Mark says, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but you will. Lead me not into temptation. Father, take this cup from me. But if I should find myself in the place of temptation, deliver me from evil. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So it says in Luke that then an angel of the Lord came and strengthened him so that he did what? He prayed even more earnestly. And his prayer in Matthew 26, 42 is again a second time. He went away and prayed and he said, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Notice the shift in the prayer. It starts off with, take it, I can't do this. He walked into that garden saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. He walked into there believing this was going to kill him and he could therefore not carry out his father's mission. But when he got there and said, take this cup, take this cup, then the angel of the Lord strengthened him and the prayer shifted because he learned this is a trial I have to go through. I have to do this. When he comes out, the disciples are freaked out. They've come to get him. Peter's trying to chop off people's heads. They're losing their minds. Jesus has to heal the guy, put his ear back on. And then he says to Peter, he says, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? What a huge difference from the way he walked in. Why? 
because not my will, but God's will. My meat, Jesus said at one point, is to do the will of him who sent me. Paul says to the church in Romans 12, he says, present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, and be not transformed to the image of this, conform to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that what? So that you could prove what is that perfect and good will of God. That this is what we're here to do, is to live out our lives in a way so that the world understands what the will of God is by our lives, by the way we live our lives. Lead us not into temptation, but if we find ourselves there, let your will be done that we might be delivered from the evil and the evil one. When you come up here to these tables, this is communion. This is proof of our relationship with God. This is proof that Christ was led into temptation so that we could be delivered from evil. When you take this, remember that. Remember that it is his goal in life that is God's goal in life, that he would be seen in his people the same way Christ is seen. Prayer is that place where heaven and earth meet to simply agree that always and in all ways, God is God. I pray that for this church, God's will would be done here as it already is in heaven. That he would give each of you and all of you your daily bread. That he would forgive and that you would forgive. But that when, not if, he leads you into temptation, that you'd have the, the courage and the faith and the belief to stay in it long enough for that trial to do its work in you. Because that is the only way that you'll be delivered from evil. Let's pray. Father, you, you are relational. You love us. You are with us. You're not just a God who's there for us, but you're a God who's here with us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for this church, Lord. We thank you for a place to come and worship you. We thank you for a place to come and collect and share stories and walk with each other and stand with each other and cry with each other. We thank you for a place where those things can happen. Father, bless this church. Bless this church to be an example of what it looks like when your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And I ask for peace in each person who is currently going through a trial. I ask for patience for those people. And I ask them to trust you that when you have delivered them from evil, that like Peter, their faith will be strengthened and they'll be able to strengthen their brothers. In Jesus' name, amen.